Lord, we love you. We love how you lead and what you do. I'm asking, Lord, that you would release revelation on your word this morning. Jesus, I pray you'd help me to speak as an oracle and share your heart this morning. So open our eyes, release the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Draw us into the knowledge of you. Let our hearts resonate with yours. Oh, we love you. We love you, Holy Spirit of God. You are the teacher. Teach us of Jesus today. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn over with me to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to start a new series this morning called Cultivating a Culture of Prayer. Cultivating a Culture of Prayer. I realize uh, a few months back that oftentimes I take for granted certain truths that I've done a lot of work on in terms of my own study. I take them for granted. A lot of times I will preach them outside of the house of prayer to, to share the vision of night and day prayer and to call people to live uh, practicing a culture of prayer. And I realized a few months ago that many of the things that I actually teach and preach outside uh, of, of ministering here, I haven't really ever preached here. And I thought that might be good to actually share a few things that I sort of take for granted that we all know. And um, I share lots of themes outside. Many times it is what I share here, but there's much I share on a culture of prayer and the house of prayer uh, that I haven't actually shared here. Some of it's in my book. Some of it's just messages I preach. Um, And so I wanted to take several weeks and just talk about this issue of a culture of prayer and what that means. There's a a phrase that we've kind of been using for a couple years now, this phrase, a culture of prayer. And it's a, it's a catchy phrase, but it's, it's, it needs to be more than a catchy phrase. It actually needs to be the culture of not just our uh, community. It has to be the culture of our community. But it, it, it has to be ultimately, and it will be ultimately, the culture of the church in the earth at the end of the age. The whole bride will be living in a culture of prayer. That's... That's what the scripture lays out. The spirit and the bride. The bride is pictured together in harmony with the Holy Spirit, crying out, come Lord Jesus. And and so the bride will be living under this reality as a, a, a fully in love with her bridegroom people, but also a people who practice this this issue of prayer, communion with the bridegroom, as a and it will be a cultural statement over her. And so Jesus lays out these truths. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my best for you this morning. I have five portions of Scripture that uh, I want to touch today. But then I've got all the detail of the storyline. But I think it's really important when we're talking about this idea of a culture of prayer that you don't in your mind sort of go, well, he's the house of prayer guy, so he's got to, like, tell everybody that they're supposed to pray. Like, that's not it at all. What's moving in me is the, the way that it's woven together in the scripture and it's pierced my heart and I go, oh my goodness, this is seriously important. And these are truths that are uh, not emphasized very often uh, in the practice of the church in the West at least. And, and so these truths have to get out there. So I'm as much, I'm preaching to our community that we would really live these things out that the scripture lays out. But as much as I'm doing that, I'm also preaching to the 8,000 that listen to us on the internet and uh, pastors and leaders that are listening to us around the nation about these issues and Jesus' statements regarding the church and this issue of a culture of prayer. And so I feel, I feel zeal on me today and I, my, my biggest challenge as a communicator today is to slow it down and, and just, just take my time for a minute and, and lay it out. So if you're familiar with a few of these things, hang with me because this stuff is, it's interesting. And there's undoubtedly things you haven't thought of before. Pray for me as you're listening that I would speak slowly. <laughs> Amen. So uh, Matthew 21, let's look at this uh, verse here, these verses in verse 12 and 13. Familiar verses. 
powerful statements from Jesus. And the implications are vast. Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den or a den of thieves. It's an intense thing for Jesus to do and to say. Now, Jesus, he cleansed the temple on two different occasions. At a, at a glance, you can look at the scripture and you can think uh, that what happened in John 2, which we'll look at in just a minute, is what happened in, in Matthew 21 and Luke 19 and Mark 11. But Luke, uh, 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 Luke 19, Matthew 21 and Mark 11, that's at the end of Jesus' life. The John 2 is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, three years earlier. Each were on the Passover. I just want to set the story up for you, because if you think it through, you just go, this is unbelievable. Here's Jesus. The beginning of his ministry. He's unknown as a prophet. He's he's not a public figure yet. Shows up in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in John 2, verse 14 through 17, it lays it out for us. He makes a whip. I mean, think about Jesus. He shows up. He's in the outer areas, what they call the, the... the, uh, the court of the Gentiles, he sees these guys buying and selling. They're, they're selling oxen and doves. They're changing money from the, the Roman coins to the Hebrew coins to pay for the temple taxes. They're buying doves. They're buying uh, ox. They're, they're buying different things for the, to, to celebrate the Passover. Everything is upcharged. So the vendors are making a killing because everybody has to have the animals to sacrifice for the Passover. So they've, they've upcharged the whole thing. It's kind of like when you go to the ball game and they know you got to eat and you go, how much is a hot dog? That'd be $8.50. $8.50? I can buy three packs of hot dogs for, for six bucks. $8.50. So here these guys are in the outer courts of the temple, the Gentile court, in the spirit of a football game, upcharging everybody, and even as they're just changing the coins, they're making a killing. Jesus sees this. Of course, he knew about it, but when he walks in, he's come into his ministry. The Holy Spirit is upon him. When he sees this, he gets provoked. He walks back out of the temple and goes to a tree and begins to break off limbs. When it says he made a whip of cords, the only way he would have been able to do this is to go to some of the low-lying branches of the local, the trees there, which the commentators will explain, have nice, thin, whipping-style branches. He breaks off several of them, wraps one around it, ties the ends, and now he's got a sweet whip in his hand. And he comes back into the temple. This is the beginning of his ministry. Back in and starts hitting people with a whip. I mean, you know, the disciples are just going, this is not how you start a ministry. You don't do this. You don't start whipping people in the temple courts on Passover. Like, what do we just sign up for? Let's just, let's just read, it, read it through in John 2. Let's just look at it. Verse 14. It's just when you get your mind around what happens, you just go, what? This is our Jesus. This is our Jesus. We were just singing worship songs to him. Verse 14, John 2. 
And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge that, you know, like when he was scourged with a cat of nine tails, that's what that means. It's a whip of cords. And those are talking about those low branches, those thin branches. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Well, I mean, how do you drive somebody out with a whip? You start whipping them. <laughs> and he poured out the coins of the money changers and threw, overturned their tables. Over, th- threw over their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Place of business. The language is so much kinder than what he says in Matthew 21. Den of thieves. Place of business is much softer. He's not indicting them yet. But when he shows back up three years later and he says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves, he's dropping an indictment on them. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered, and I'll just put in a parenthesis, Psalm 69, verse 9 through 11, his disciples remembered that it was written in Psalm 69, verse 9 through 11, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus starts his ministry by showing up at the temple and driving out the money changers and those who are selling the animals to, to, for the celebration of the Passover. He starts it by getting the whip and driving these people out and driving out their, their animals and overturning their tables and throwing the money on the ground. This is how he starts. That would be a huge statement. That's a a massive statement for someone to make. Now, fast forward three years later. It's the Passover again. And here comes Jesus. Now imagine you're a guy that sells doves. Okay? Now you've heard about this prophet, and you remember that's the guy that did the money change your turnover table thing and he hit me a few times with that whip the last time he was here now think about this there you are selling your doves and here comes jesus back into the courts of the temple at the passover of course what are you thinking about three years earlier no doubt you've told stories man you remember that time that guy that providence he's crazy he's wild man i heard he's raising the dead it's wild i mean undoubtedly told stories about him but now three years later here comes jesus and he fixes his eyes on him again and he starts walking with a purpose at the guy's table i mean the guy's going here he comes again and jesus does the same no whip this time throws over the tables, lets the doves go, take these things out, and he says it more strongly this time, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. His house is to be called a house of prayer. Ultimately, what he was saying is this, where is the prayer? You guys have kept the sacrificial system around, Because you're making money on it. But the house wasn't supposed to be called a house of sacrifice. It was supposed to be called a house of prayer. Where is the night and day prayer? Seven Hebrew kings practiced night and day prayer in the manner that David had prescribed. All seven had revival. But by Jesus' time, that was just a a memory. That was just a historical fact. That wasn't the practice of the people. The feasts were being practiced with, with just simply the, the, the outward, the exterior show. They didn't have the ark in the holy place, and they didn't have the prayer that took place 24 hours a day. And so when Jesus shows up, he goes, essentially he's saying, where's the prayer? You've made this about entertainment and economics. I've often thought about that And come under conviction as a leader in the Western church. 
at this season, and I wonder how often the Lord, I know he's gentle and he loves his bride, but I wonder how often he has the same thoughts. You've made it about economics and entertainment. Where's the prayer? And even more so with a community like this one, we're actually, some might say crazy enough, some might say stupid enough, to put it in our title, House of Prayer. Well, guess what? If you put that in your title, you actually better do the deal. <laughs> you can't just put that in the title. You gotta actually live this thing. And it's a, it's a man, it, it penetrates me. It convicts my heart. I go, oh God, Jesus, if you were to show up here, I know you like me, I know you love me, but oh, what would be the zeal in your heart for reality and truth in that moment? So as I'm thinking about this, I want you to, I want you to consider why would Jesus start and end essentially his ministry with the most exuberant public display he makes? I mean, you got to get it. This is not just a nice part of his life story. He begins it and he ends his ministry with the same exclamation point in the temple. Where is the prayer? That is a powerful thought. He does three years of ministry in between, essentially. And all of it, I believe, is supporting what he's trying to get across to the people of God as the key cultural reality that the people of God are to be known for. Prayer. See, here we are. We're at the change of the Testaments. God is on the planet. Everything's changing. The wineskin is changing. Everything is in a time of, of shift and transition. And Jesus is making statements that are going to forever alter and direct the course of the church. And the, I mean, just a, the key punctuation mark. My house should be called a house of prayer. For him to make that statement at this time in this fashion, beloved, we have got to pay attention to it. Now, I want to mention this. I don't believe that this is simply a, a moment of indictment, though I do believe it is that. I do believe he's, that's a judgment statement. He's releasing judgment. He's passing judgment. When you see it in, uh, in Mark when Mark tells the story, we get the story of the fig tree, we get the cleansing of the temple, and then we get, again, the story of this fig tree. It's nice, so the, the cleansing of the temple is nicely sandwiched in between Jesus cursing the fig tree and the disciples seeing the fig tree cursed. It's a picture that the Lord is releasing judgment on Israel. I don't believe it's only that. I want to I investigate that point in just a minute, a little bit more, but what I believe the Lord is doing is that this this transition of the Testaments, he is making an overarching cultural statement that's supposed to define the corporate reality of the people of God. He's making a cultural statement that's supposed to define what the people of God are known for. Like, do the math in your head for a minute. He could have shown up and said, what are you doing out here? You're selling and stealing, you den of thieves. My house is to be called a house of generosity. It seems like that would fit more with the context because there they were making a, a killing on the, the, the temple, on the, on the feast. I mean, it seems like he should have said, my house is to be called a house of giving. He could have said, my house is to be called a house of devotion. Authentic devotion. This is false. It should be authentic. He could have said, my house is to be called a house of love. God is love. That would have made plenty of sense. He could have said, my house is to be called a house of evangelism. Don't you know we're supposed to be calling people to the knowledge of God? A house of service, a house of mercy, a house of fill in the blank. What's your favorite Christian thing to do? But he doesn't. He didn't say any of that. 
And what he doesn't say is just as important as what he does say. Here's what I'm trying to explain. He says, my house should be called a house of prayer because prayer is what the, the people of God are to be known for from the people who look at the people of God. My house shall be called. Shall be called by who? By people who are looking at us. My house is to be known as a house of prayer. And so it begs the question, for me and for leaders, for pastors, if you're a pastor and you're listening to this, it begs the question, when the lost look at the church, do they look at the church and they go, one thing's for sure, those people are a praying people. They're praying and talking to their God for sure. Or or is there other things that our churches are known for? Here's why this is so important. Yes, Jesus said it. Yes, Jesus made a massive statement by saying it. But here's why. Prayer, beloved, is the foundational cultural reality that the church is supposed to live unto all the other kingdom realities flowing from it. If the people of God will do prayer, they will do love. If they will do prayer, they'll do evangelism. If they'll do prayer, they'll do mercy. If the people of God will live in prayer, prayer is the cultural reality that will facilitate all the other activities of the kingdom. So he's making a cultural statement. My house shall be called a house of prayer. In just a few chapters, he's going to give a commission statement. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. I want to propose this. Jesus gives us the culture that we're to live by unto, and that culture will facilitate the commission he's going to give us. The culture of prayer facilitates the great commission, not vice versa and no other way. It's why he said in Matthew 9, see the fields, they're white unto harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he send forth laborers into his field. In other words, he goes, do the cultural reality of prayer first unto the commissioning and sending of laborers. Prayer as a culture practiced by the people of God is what facilitates all the other kingdom realities and specifically what enables the people of God to fulfill the great commission. You could say it this way. Prayer is the great culture. Evangelism and discipleship are the great commission. The great culture facilitates the great commission. Come on now. Okay, y'all are chewing. I'll just let y'all hang in there. Now here's where I get challenged. When Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation and he begins to rebuke the different churches, he rebukes them for different things. One he rebukes for being loveless, you know, another for being lukewarm. One for being dead. Church he rebukes for being dead. He says, you have a name. People know you as being alive because they were a revival center. They'd been a revival center. You have a name that you're alive. But he goes, I know this. You're dead on the inside. And man, that is a piercing and penetrating word from the mouth of the Lord Jesus to his own church, guys. I'm telling you, he's kind, he's tender, he's loving. Oh, he's awesome, so, so caring and compassionate. Oh, and he likes us so much. And he's so serious. He's the one that sets up lampstands, speaking of local churches. And he's the one, and you see it in the book of Revelation, who removes them. And he says to that church, he says, if you don't do, re- repent and do the first things, he says it to the loveless church, he says it to us. He goes, I'm going to take away your lampstand. Jesus shuts churches down just as much as he opens them. It's our Jesus. We got to kind of deal with the Jesus with the whip of cords. You got to know that guy. He's the same Jesus. Stretched out his arms and died on the cross. 
And so I'm pierced over that point. I go, oh, Lord, I don't want just the name house of prayer. I want the reality of it. I don't want just to be known as people that go through the motions of prayer. You can even go through the motions of it without the heart of it. Caleb was singing a, a chorus that, that, that they, they sang on Tuesday for the first time. It says, you know, I don't want to just know all the language and I don't want to just know all the songs. With, you know, and, and you know, singing all the songs and knowing all the language doesn't get you anything if you're disconnected from the greatest one of all. You know what they were doing at that time? They were going through the motions of the sacrificial system and their hearts were disconnected from God. Now, lest you misunderstand me, I'm not standing up here with a big baseball bat smashing everybody and gonna tell you, we've got the name, but we're dead. You're all dead. I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. What I wanna do is lay out clearly in the scripture Jesus' words and the, the biblical background that gives us courage to live our lives in a culture of prayer. And call us to it. Call us to it. We facilitate it for our staff. And we ask it of our community. And we welcome whosoever. But there's a place where it's got to get past what we facilitate. And what we encourage. And what we welcome. To we actually just embrace it and just live it. Just do it. And so when Jesus makes this statement. My house should be called a house of prayer. It's what the church should be known for. And it's a cultural statement that he's laying out that will facilitate all the other kingdom activity. If we get it out of order and we try to do other things and add prayer on as salt sort of to the main ministry, we've missed it completely. He deals with this because he wants this. He deals with it in the way he does. And he says it in such a a bold way because he wants it to be the governing uh, truth Uh, the foundational governing truth of the way that we operate, a house of prayer. Now, this works individually and it works corporately, both and. Some would try to pit one against the other. Some would say, well, we're all the temple of the Holy Spirit, so we're all just supposed to be people that pray all the time. Yes, that's true. In fact, that's, that's real. That's a real truth that we really need to actually take a minute on. It's just as true That individually, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. As believers, God, the Holy Spirit, lives in us. Not in a sort of, you know, ethereal, you know, concept. In a reality, in a real way, the Holy Spirit has now taken up occupancy in the spirit of born-again believers. That's real. God lives on the inside of you. And as one who is a temple of the Spirit of God... Yes and amen. We must be houses of prayer individually. We must be always continuously communing with the Lord, communing with the spirit within, approaching the throne. We've got a new and living way to come to the throne. By the blood of Jesus, the way has been thrown open to approach the throne of grace, to receive mercy and grace, to help in time of need. We have the indwelling spirit whom we can fellowship with all day. I I tell you, beloved, God said stuff like pray without ceasing. People go, oh, it seems so challenging. Pray without ceasing. But wait a minute, you got God inside of you. It's like, Lord, how are you? I'm doing good in here. I mean, that's not a far distance. This is right here. Oh, Lord, yes. Holy Spirit, yes, I'm here. I mean, it's it's that fast. He goes, pray without ceasing. I'll make it super easy. How about I get inside of you? Now, with that uh, uh, mandate for every believer, pray without ceasing, to be individual houses of prayer, that means that our thought life becomes a prayer life. You just somebody goes, how do you pray without ceasing? I go, I just think to God. I, I, we, we did a garage sale a week ago, and the people came in, man, they were beating me up. They were haggling for 25 cents. It was like, man, I'm getting beaten up, man. These, these little ladies, they're like garage sale professionals, you know. They come out of the car, and man, they're walking like soldiers. And I, had a, I had a brand new 
pair of pajamas I was trying to sell. The price tag was still on it, 18 bucks. Sell for five bucks. I thought I'm giving somebody a deal. She said, 350. I said, 350? That's $18. I'll do five. And my brother, my brother's in the background going, no, give it to her. Give it to her. I, I, it's five. She goes, Rah. He goes, offer her four. I'm thinking I'm giving her a good deal. Five bucks is 18. I go, how about four? She goes, 350. I was like, maybe I don't know the rules yet or something. So I sat down and dialogue with the Lord about it. Just have you having, you know, you have conversations. Lord, I don't know what that was about. She's arguing with me for 50 cents. I tried to make her a deal. I wanted to add a hat to it. Give you a hat and the pajamas, five bucks. Four dollars only. I was like, okay, sorry. But those little life experiences, I go, Lord, what was that all about? You know, just dialoguing with the Lord. Always. Through everything. Through, you know, funny, challenging, nothing, just whatever. Always dialoguing with the Lord. That's, that's, how you, that's how you pray without ceasing. But, but that's how you live as a house of prayer. Continuing to dialogue with the Lord all day, all night. And then setting aside times where nothing is between you and God and you lock in for hours at a time. I want to propose something to you. I don't think it's going to fly at the judgment seat if, if we try to pass off I didn't have time as an excuse while we don't lock in for hours at a time with Jesus. I don't think that's going to work. Because it's going to be a shocker what we did have time for. The Lord's going to pull out the pie graph. And go, let's see, 25% of your time was on television and entertainment. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You were eating this much, you were sleeping this much, and all these different pursuits. And oh, look at the little prayer slice. That one's not going to work. The I didn't have time is not going to work. And so, yes, we're supposed to be individual houses of prayer. Temples housing the Holy Spirit continuously. You know, the easiest way to, uh, to identify it, just as the corporate gathering is to be known by those who are outside, what is that place known for? You can apply that to your own self. What are you known for? What are you known for? Are you a house of prayer? But somebody say, that's a praying person. There's one thing I know, that's a praying person. Do you see the point I'm making? This, this is serious. And this is the cultural imperative that the church is supposed to embrace. And this, in particular, is the mandate of this community. And we, beloved, have got to live our lives as individual houses of prayer. This is what the Lord called us to. Now, we don't substitute the corporate reality for the individual reality. We live the individual reality unto the corporate reality. Because the mandate for the corporate reality to be a house of prayer is as strong and particularly, it's more explicit in the scripture than even the individual. Because when Jesus stands up and he says, my house should be called a house of prayer, let me give you the backdrop on it. I've given you the story and the context, but the backdrop is he's quoting Isaiah 56. Let's just look over at Isaiah 56. Verse 6 says, Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain. That's in Jerusalem in the age to come. This verse is particularly talking about the age to come when Jesus is ruling on the planet in Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to bring those of the, all the nations. He says, I'm going to bring them to my house of prayer and make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
The burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples or all the nations. Now follow me for a minute. This verse in context is talking about the age to come. The thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. He's going to gather all nations to his holy mountain in Jerusalem. They're going to have continual worship and intercession 24-7 in Jerusalem with Jesus helping to lead it. He goes, I'll gather all nations there and my house in Jerusalem shall be known as a house of prayer for all nations. So when he shows up in Matthew 21, he says, he's essentially saying, you know my house is supposed to be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's saying, you know where this thing is headed. He's talking to Jewish scholars. They know the Isaiah prophecy. He goes, you know my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Where is the prayer? What have you done? You've made it a den of thieves. And here's my point. He shows up to the Jewish system with the temple in Jerusalem. He says, you know where this thing is going. It's going to be a house of prayer for all nations. I'm going to make all nations joyful in my house of prayer. Why are you not doing it now? And here's my point. In that moment, Jesus points to the millennial reality. He points to the thousand year reign on the earth reality. And he says, you're supposed to be doing it now, even unto that day. Now, here's the thing. You won't find a verse where he revokes that. All you find are admonitions to that. You don't find a verse where he revokes night and day prayer. All you find are, are areas where the scripture supports it. Like Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. And they talk about the tabernacle of David will be restored. That's, whenever you see tabernacle of David and the restoration of the tabernacle of David, it's talking about Jesus ruling on the planet night and day prayer. That's what it's talking about. So there it is in the middle of the first church. They're going, how do we deal with all these Gentiles? What do we do? He goes, well, I'll tell you what, the tabernacle of David's going to be restored. This reality of night and day prayer is going to be the, the main deal. This is how we need to move forward. And so my point becomes, it's never been revoked that night and day prayer was supposed to be the centerpiece of the people of God. It's only affirmed in the New Testament and from Jesus' own mouth. He points to the millennial reality. He says, you should be doing it now. And why am I saying all that? I'm just saying all that to give, uh, saying all that to give you this. The people of God are to be known as a praying people. Yes, individually, but yes, corporately. The key testimonies of scripture over this issue make it pretty explicit, make it pretty clear. And I'm, I'm gripped for myself, I'm gripped for leaders because I just wonder what that might look like when Jesus asks, now what did you do with that thing I said about my house shall be called a house of prayer? Because I was pretty intense about it. I flipped over a lot of tables. I made a big deal about that point. Remember that one? Can you think of a point where Jesus made a bigger deal? Is there anything else? Any other time where he threw over tables and made a whip and threw money all over the ground? I mean, you ever thought about what coins sound like going through the stone floor of the outer courts of the... T- I mean, ching, chong, chong. I mean, do, can you... Is there another time when he made a bigger deal than when he said this? Oh, beloved, this is who we're to be. This is who we are to be individually and corporately. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And then he says this tough statement. You are making it a robber's den. A robber's den. Now that phrase, robber's den or den of thieves, is a quote. He's quoting Jeremiah. So let's look over at Jeremiah 7 and look at the passage he's quoting. I pray this would land on your soul. See, to me, this isn't a drudge. This is excitement. 
But we've got to actually get these concepts of house of prayer and a culture of prayer and put them in their right place and give them the right emphasis that the Lord emphasized them with. In a three-year ministry, he makes a big deal in the temple courts over this point two different times. And this isn't a drudge. This is an excitement. You know, I remember uh, several years ago, I was sharing with a pastor and a and uh, he's now leading prayer gatherings and, and calling people to night and day prayer all, all through the evangelical church. And, and, but I was sharing with him, and he said, so how much do you pray? And I said, well, you know, our, our sacred trust, our commitment is that we would do 12 prayer sets a week. And he goes, so how long is a prayer set? And I go, well, they're two hours each. He goes, are you telling me you pray 24 hours a week? I go, well, I'm, you know, I'm in the Word, and I'm praying, and... Studying, but yeah, it's, it's 24 hours in the prayer room and dialoguing with God. But, but, you know, I mean, I have time outside of the prayer room. I'm praying in my car and home, my children, I mean, I, my family. We're praying. But, you know, I, I, yeah, that's what my commitment to the house of prayers. And he, just, he just marveled. He goes, how do you have the discipline to do that? And I go, oh, you've got this all wrong. I'm, I'm not a disciplined guy. I'm a sanguine I like parties and fun and candy. That, that's the kind of, I, I like football and pizza. I'm just a regular dude, you know. I, I'm not ultra disciplined, never have been. You know, I mean, that's just, he, he goes, well, what are you talking, how can you do that much focused prayer? How can you say you're not disciplined? I said, well, let me ask you something. If I gladly ate an, a bowl of ice cream covered in fudge every single night. If you watched me for a month and you watched me scoop down, you know, gallon after gallon of ice cream loaded with fudge, would you think I was disciplined? He said, no. You'd think I was a glutton for ice cream, right? He goes, yeah. I go, it's like that for me with prayer. So there's a pain and barrenness and there's a wilderness time that you have to always press through and you go through seasons of that. But let me tell you something. Just like you wouldn't think I was disciplined if I was eating ice cream every night. I don't see it that way because that, this, is, this is what gives my life. This is air to my, to my life. This, this, is the, this gives, gives my heart life. This is my lifeline, is connecting to the Lord. This is not discipline for me. This is air. And that's, that's what it is. Prayer becomes your lifeline. And yeah, there's a minute where you pull back. There's a minute where you, you know, you've got to go through the barrenness of your soul longing for other things. And I go through that up and down at different times. And I have to, you know, there's times when I have to bring myself back into, God, I want you and you alone. Turn up the, the desire in my soul for, for you and, and, and remove all the other attractions and, and help me to be focused, God. I mean, there's those realities for sure. But by and large, I look at the last eight years of my life spent in predominantly every week. 12 prayer meetings a week minimum. And I say, this has not been a big uh, exercise of my own personal discipline. This has been uh, eating ice cream because the Lord has encountered me. He's breathed on my dry soul. He's released fresh water to a dry land. And, And this is a delight of my soul. And man, yes, there's been seasons of wilderness I had to persevere through. But to find out he loves me, to hear the voice of the Lord and to hear him say, I love you, and to affirm that, and for, the, for revelation in the word to come alive, for my soul, it's groaning. See, my soul is telling me all the time, I'm not only made for this place. Your soul's saying the same thing. Your soul is telling you you're made for more than this. And see, all I'm doing is agreeing with that pang in my soul that says, I'm made for more than this. I'm made for more than this natural realm. I'm made for encounter with God. My soul was made. It was created by God for encounter with God. So all I'm doing is saying yes to the desire of my soul. 
and, and, and I really do, I feel like it's air. Prayer is air. It becomes your lifeblood. Without it, you just die. And that's the way he wants us to live. Love sick. We can't do without him. It's not been mostly an exercise of discipline on my behalf. It's been mostly an exercise of getting caught by God. He caught me and I can't live without him. All right, let's look at this Den of Thieves passage. We'll end with this. I'm trying to give you the foundational ideas that I orient from and that we orient from as a people. My house should be called a house of prayer is a cultural foundational idea that, that determines the, the, the key way in which the people of God are to operate unto all the other kingdom expressions. He could have said my house should be called a house of fill in the blank, but he said house of prayer. And so that tells us where we're supposed to exert our, our, our focus and our will first. All right, let's look at this, Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah prophesying about 25 years before the, the, the Babylonian army is going to come down on Jerusalem. He's prophesying judgment, oddly enough, in a season of revival. And he says this, Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal? And walk after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. That you may do all these abominations. The people were practicing sin and showing up at the temple and imagining that just because the fact that they were going through the motions and the temple worship, and then the very fact that the temple was standing, it was like they were imagining that the temple was was the impenetrable, uh, you know, God's stamp of approval that nothing else could come against them because the temple of God was there in their midst. And they were practicing sin and taking the temple of God lightly. And he goes, are you going to do all these things? You're going to steal and murder and, and to be in a perversion and then come and, and, and go through the motions in the temple and, and imagine that you're delivered from the enemy nations that are out there? That's the idea. Look what the Lord says. Verse 11. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Is the house now a den of thieves to you? That you treat it in such a way with such perversion as... This is what he was saying to the Israelites. Do you just imagine you can just do your own life? He goes, has the house become a den of thieves? Where you and your sin just come together and that's just how you live? Look at this. Behold, I, even I have seen it. Because I know what you're doing. I know the intentions of your heart. I know where you're at. Because I know what's going on here. But go now, this, and this is so, this just caused you to tremble. Go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name to dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Shiloh is where the Lord had Joshua come and bring the ark and set up worship and and the sacrificial system of Moses before the ark in Shiloh. And in the day of Eli, when the the people had turned from the Lord and when Eli's sons were were living as hypocrites, the Lord raises up the the Philistines and they they come in and they destroy Shiloh and they, they take the ark. He goes, go and look at Shiloh. He goes, and see what that did for the people of God. It didn't keep them from being judged. Because just because you have the temple, it means nothing. It's about your heart. Just because you're going through the motions, it means nothing. It's about your heart. Look what I did. Oh, 
See what I did to it because of the weakness of my people. And now because you've done all these things, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to the place which I gave you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. It was 25 years before the Babylonian army came down and in three successive sieges destroyed the temple, raised it to the ground, and took the people captive to Babylon. And beloved, when Jesus shows up, oh my gosh, he gives them a three-year warning. He says, you're making this a place of business. And then he shows up three years later and he says, you've made it a den of thieves. And he's quoting what Jeremiah had said 25 years before the temple was burned to the ground. And you know what happens? It's, it's 40 years later. After Jesus says den of thieves in the temple court, it's 40 years later, very similar to Jeremiah's day, when the Roman army comes, sieges Jerusalem, and burns the temple to the ground again. It was a statement of judgment. Just like in Jeremiah's day. Oh, beloved, see, these aren't nice little slogans. You can't approach, my house should be called a house of prayer as a nice little catchphrase or a little slogan. We're talking about what was near and dear to Jesus' heart and still is. Beloved, when he comes back, he's going to rule from Jerusalem And you know what he's going to do? Set up night and day prayer. Isaiah 16, 5. It says, in mercy, a throne shall be established. And in righteousness, in the tabernacle of David, where the Lord will rule on the earth in the rebuilt tabernacle of David that Amos prophesied. This is not light. This is not to be a catchphrase. It's not to be a slogan. It's not even to be a title for a ministry. It's just, as I preach this... Buddy, you better believe it that I've got to tremble in my heart over this point. That we call ourselves International House of Prayer. (laughs) Because ultimately the issue for Jesus in the days of Jeremiah and in the days that Jesus walked the earth, ultimately the issue is this. Yeah, you've got the place, but are you doing it from the heart? Yeah, you've got the the external, but is this the reality? Are you seeing it? Do you see it? So I don't stand with a, a rod of judgment. That's not the point. The point is we have got to cultivate this, even in this house, as our primary culture. Because I tell you, this is where it's going. The church at the end of the age will be a house of prayer. And in the next age, she will be a house of prayer. And we are to be a house of prayer, individually and corporately, in this hour. And so it, it, it just boils down to some, some real, just simple things. We need to pay attention to how we spend our time. We need to see if we're if we're spending time, wasting time that we could be giving to the Lord in other pursuits. I know time is like the commodity of the hour. Like if you have time, like nobody has time. I think what it is is nobody has time because we've spent all of our time. And what we've really got to look at is what have we spent our time on and see if we can redeem the time. And reappropriate the time. And the other point is this. I mean, if, if we're a part of a place called the house of prayer and we're running together, whether you're community or you're, you're just a part of the house or your staff, we can't just have the name. We've got to have the reality. We, we've got to have it as the practice of our lives, individually and corporately. So we've got to be a people that embrace these truths. You know, I have no problem being the guy that says the same thing over and over and over and over. I've done that for years. I believe revival is coming to Atlanta. I've been saying that for 
20 years. It will not bother me to say it for 20 more years. <laughs> to call people to prayer, to give themselves to prayer. I mean, I've been saying that now for about 10 years. It's not going to bother me to say it for 10 more years. I'm going to just keep saying it. You, come, you know, you might show them, man, he's kind of saying the same thing. Well, you know what? <laughs> that ain't going to change. <laughs> I'm going to continue to call the church to prayer, to give their hearts to Jesus in abandonment and worship. Prayer is the one concept that everybody loves, but so few practice. Everybody loves it. But man, to actually live a lifestyle of prayer. Have you thought about it on that day that you're going to stand before him and you're going to go through the works and the actions of your life? Jesus is going to review with you how you spent your days. Have you thought about it? I love that Leonard Ravenhill quote. He says, we can't patch up our prayer life when we get to the judgment seat. Whoa. Oh, beloved. This is who we are. This is what we're called to be. I want to cultivate it. I want to cultivate this culture. In the, in the, now, in the, the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about certain facets of Scripture. We're talking about abiding with the Lord. We're going, to, we're going to talk about how the Lord laid out the establishment of the tabernacle of day. We're going to get these things rooted in our foundation so we understand what is this thing we're even saying we're doing that we're a part of? This is so critical to us, beloved. I, I really want to encourage us to, to take a moment, step back, and allow the Lord to, to, to really investigate us and to check our hearts and to allow these truths to go deep in our souls. Amen. Amen. All right, let's stand. Jesus, you said my house shall be called a house of prayer. I pray, Lord, that that truth, with all of its implications, it would alight upon us. When people look at the gathering places of the church, what is the predominant way that we're defined? My house shall be called a house of prayer. You said it. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. I pray for courage to be set in our soul. We would be ones that live by this cultural imperative, this cultural mandate. We would be ones that give our lives to prayer. as our first pursuit in the knowledge of God to pray, to talk to you in the word, in worship, through utterance, through meditation. My house shall be called a house of prayer. God, I pray you'd clarify it. That all other kingdom pursuits are supposed to be generated out of that cultural reality. No, Lord, that as individuals and as a corporate body, we would give ourselves to this, seeking you, Jesus, being before you, Jesus, worshiping you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Hey, if this has touched you in a, in a, in a fresh way or maybe there's you just feel a conviction of the Lord resting on you over this issue and you want to just respond to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be individually a house of prayer and I want to participate in the community of saints built together as a dwelling place for God and the Spirit as a corporate house of prayer. I want to say yes to that. You feel like the Lord is, is uh, challenging you or encouraging you or convicting you over this matter and you just want to say yes to the Lord. I just want to invite you forward. I just want to have a moment. Ask the Lord to come and release grace. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Some of us, it means we need, to, we need to think through our schedule. Figure out how we can set apart time in a different way. 
I would encourage you as a part of this community, figure out a prayer meeting or two a week that you can just lock into. We do like an all staff prayer meeting on Tuesday at four, but there's a prayer all week. Just lock in, just lock in mornings, evenings. This is who we are as a community, beloved. It will not change. This is our mandate. It will be our primary pursuit. Many other things will flow out of this, but this is the chief one. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.